Hey, I'm Nancy Cavey, National ERISA and Individual Disability Attorney. Welcome to this episode of Winning Isn't Easy. Before we get started, I've got to give you that legal disclaimer. The Florida Bar tells me that I have to tell you that this podcast is not legal advice. All right, I've done that. And nothing will prevent me from giving you an easy-to-understand overview of the disability insurance world, the games that disability carriers play, and what you need to know to get the disability benefits you deserve. So off we go. Now, today, I'm going to be talking about exploring the world of neuropathic disorders. And these are disorders that cause neuropathic pain. And those of you who have neuropathic pain know how painful it is how these disorders can sometimes overlap with other pain-centric disorders like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And we're even going to walk through a case study so you can see firsthand how disability carriers handle pain and neuropathic pain-based claims. We're going to discuss three specific topics. One is going to be neuropathic uh, ocular pain and your ERISA disability claim. I'm going to talk about the similarities between Ehlers-Danlos syndrome complex and I'm sorry and complex regional pain syndrome and an ERISA disability claim. And I'm going to talk about how an ERISA claims administrator like Sedgwick will try to get away with a denial based on a non-specialty IME in neuropathic or RSD claims. All of this is really relevant to your ERISA claim, regardless of whether your uh, particular disorder is neuropathic in nature because many basis of disability claims have a pain component. So this is something that's relevant for every ERISA disability claim. Let's take a break before we get started. Have you been robbed of your peace of mind from your disability insurance carrier? You owe it to yourself to get a copy of Robbed of Your Peace of Mind which provides you with everything you need to know about the long-term disability claim process. Request your free copy of the book at kvlaw.com today. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Let's talk about neuropathic ocular pain and an ERISA disability claim. Your cornea has significant sensory innervation and it can produce pain that obviously can result in a disability claim. Now, neuropathic ocular pain, known as NOP, is a constellation of persistent ocular pain syndromes. You might have burning, you might have increased sensitivity to light or wind, shooting pain in one or both eyes, and that may or may not be present uh, on examination with an ocular surface abnormality. In other words, you can have pain without actually having an ocular surface abnormality. It can be caused uh, by um, a number of conditions, uh, anatomic abnormalities, environmental exposures, even nerve dysfunction of the peripheral and central nerves that connect the cornea uh, to the conjunctive uh, uh, of the brain. Uh, And these are incredibly painful uh, conditions that interfere obviously with visual uh, acuity, um, distance, um, peripheral vision, um, but more importantly, it, um, as I've said, is incredibly painful. So let's start out by talking about what disability carriers are looking for in a disability claim. Uh, they're going to start out by getting your medical records. They're going to be looking for a thorough history of your ocular problems, how they developed, 
how they impact your ability to function. Uh, and they're going to look for the results of physical examinations and diagnostic studies. What's important in my view is that you understand that NOP can be present in one or both of your eyes. It can start spontaneously. It can start uh, after trauma. It can even start after surgery. There can be very few physical signs of ocular damage, uh, uh, you know, based on physical examination. Uh, and there can also be some problems with uh, examinations, results, and with diagnostic studies. So at a minimum, the disability carrier is going to expect that you are going to be seen by somebody other than your general practitioner. In other words, they want to see examinations by eye care providers and eye pain specialists. It can be very difficult to diagnose, and that will sort of play into the disability carrier's games because they want to see a concrete diagnosis. Another problem here is that NOP symptoms don't always correlate uh, with the actual physical findings. And many patients are dismissed. Pain patients are dismissed all the time as being drug-seeking or anxious. And your medical records, regardless of if we're talking about NOP or any other pain condition, should be addressing these issues. So what, what are your symptoms? How do those symptoms begin? Uh, how do those symptoms impact with your ability to function? What are the physical exam findings? What are any diagnostic findings? Um, if they are inconclusive or potentially quote unquote inconsistent, your medical records should be addressing this and explain why you may not present with all of the uh, expected physical findings, but nonetheless, you have this diagnosis of NOP. And your medical records should document whether or not you're drug seeking or whether or not this is all psychiatric, if you will, in your head, because these are the common things that disability carriers will seize on. Now, what else do they want to see in your medical records? They want to see that you got appropriate medical treatment. And that involves uh, you getting dry eye treatment, uh, therapies and treatment to correct ocular surfaces, uh, surface abnormalities pain management. They want to see that and they want to see your response to this particular type of uh, treatment. Now, obviously, they're going to be looking at your medical records and they're going to be looking at your activity of daily living forms and the APS forms that your doctors have completed. There has to be consistency between your history of the symptoms, uh, the impact that you're complaining of, in terms of your uh, ability to work. But there also has to be consistency here between what you're reporting in terms of your activities of daily living. So if you say, for example, you know, wind uh, makes your symptoms worse, but you're out on the golf course playing golf, um, that potentially can be a problem. So your activities need to be consistent with uh, the aggravating factors that cause the uh, NOP symptoms. Now, think about that. Uh, think about that also in terms of what you're doing, if anything, on social media, because I promise you, uh, as part of the evaluation of an NOP claim or any claim, quite frankly, the carrier is going to be looking at your activity of daily living forms, your medical records, 
going to be looking at the APS form that the doctor has completed, and they're going to be looking at your social media accounts to determine whether or not they actually believe the diagnosis, whether they believe that the symptoms impact your ability to do your own or any occupation, and whether or not the medical treatment that you're getting rises to the level of care that is expected in the case. And understand, overlaying all of this is going to be your social media report uh, on any kinds of social media site. Are you doing something that's inconsistent with a diagnosis, with your reported symptoms, or your inability to work? Consistency is the key. Got it? All right, let's take a break. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Let's talk about the similarities between Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Complex Regional Pain Syndrome and an ERISA disability claim. Now, those of you who suffer from both medical conditions are saying, why on earth is Nancy Cavey asking, you know, are there similarities? Because I don't really think there are any similarities um, based on my symptoms. So let's answer that question. Let's start out with a proposition that disability insurance companies hate cases like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Complex Regional Pain Syndrome because of the absence of objective diagnostic testing, overlapping disease symptoms, and their own particular bias about the nature of these diseases. Now, as I've said before, this is applicable regardless of whether you have Ehlers-Danlos or Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. This is the approach that disability carriers take. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's consider the nature of both diseases. So let's talk first about complex regional pain syndrome, or CRP. It's an acquired neuropathic pain syndrome. It's diagnosed by using what's called the Budapest criteria. There's no gold standard test to diagnose this disease. And it has its own classifications. There's type 1, which is without the presence of a nerve injury, which is more common. There's type 2, which is the presence of a nerve injury. And both types 1 and 2 are systemic diseases that can impact any organ or any symptom. And it's also thought, by the way, to have a genetic component. So now we get the basics, if you will, of uh, complex regional pain syndrome. Let's contrast that with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos also has a genetic component. In fact, it's a genetic connective tissue disorder that's caused by defects in the collagen that can lead to joint hypermobility and laxity in the skin, ligaments, joints, eyes, bones, and blood vessels, and even internal organs. It's characterized, as chronic pain syndrome is, by chronic pain. It's diagnosed by using the Brighton diagnostic criteria as be, as there is no gold standard test. The lack of objective testing and the use of diagnostic criteria that doesn't rely on gold standard testing makes these types of disability claims suspect in the eyes of the disability carrier or a plan administrator. So your medical records, just like in any other medical condition, have to explain the basis of the diagnosis, be it uh, CPR or uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So Let's talk about the overlapping symptoms. The diagnostic criteria 
for both uh, CRPS and EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, are in part based on your subjective symptoms. And guess what? Disability carriers or plans are going to question not only the existence of, but the severity of your symptoms in the case of uh, of these diseases. It can include something called allodynia, which is even air or light touching will cause extreme pain, hyperalgesia, tremors um, or myoclonus, heightened sensitivity to light, sounds, touches, and odors, poor concentration, poor short-time memory, chronic pain, headaches, GERD, and IBS symptoms, urological issues, skin issues, tinnitus, thyroid dysfunction, a whole host of um, symptoms, some of which overlap uh, with uh, with uh, uh, chronic regional pain syndrome. And I will tell you, regardless of, of either, the Disability carrier is going to look at those medical records for the symptoms, and it's important in both instances, both diseases, to document the frequency, nature, and intensity of your symptoms and do that with particular detail about how these symptoms impact your ability to do your own or any occupation. Now, one of the other things I think both of these diseases have in common when it relates to an ERISA disability claim is the disability insurance carrier plan bias. Many carriers or plans have position papers on how they view these types of diseases and explicit instructions for how a claim is to be evaluated. And these position papers become the roadmap to a claim denial or termination. The decisions that they make are bolstered by the carrier's plan uh, or the, the carrier or the plan's use of biased medical peer review doctors, who I call them liar for hires. Now, many times what happens is that these medical reviewers don't even believe in CRPS, the diagnostic criteria, or the idea that it can be disabling. And they kind of poo-poo EDS claims on the basis that notwithstanding all of the symptoms, including laxity, dislocation, that you ought to be able to do something because you've got a brain. Now, they will often question the restrictions and limitations assigned by your physicians. So the carrier is going to question the diagnosis, question whether or not the condition is disabling, question the restrictions and limitations. And in doing so, as I've said, they're going to be relying on these position papers that they've created. They're going to rely on liar for hire doctors who in turn are going to rely on unreliable um, uh, medical journals and reports to substantiate the ultimate conclusion that they make. And they're going to stack all of this medical documentation and the carrier is going to say, hey, either we don't accept the diagnosis or yeah, we accept the diagnosis, but it doesn't, uh, your symptoms aren't consistent or your symptoms do not rise to the level of severity that will result in disability. So what should you do if your claim has been denied or terminated? You need to understand that the, under the ERISA law, you're only going to have 180 days in which to file an appeal. And if you don't file an appeal, you're giving the disability carrier a easy win. You can see that these claims, uh, CRPS claims, EDS claims, are medically factually and legally complex. It's a, a very uh, difficult area, if you will, 
because of the carrier's position papers and their bias. Now, these denials and terminations can be overcome, but as you can see, it's going to take a lot of work and documentation. Got it? All right, let's take a break. Are you a professional with questions about your individual disability policy? You need the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. This book gives you a comprehensive understanding of your disability policy with tips and to-dos regarding your disability application that will assist you in submitting a winning disability application. This is one you won't want to miss. For the next 24 hours, we are giving away free copies of the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. Order yours today at disabilityclaimsforprofessionals.com. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Can an ERISA Disability Claim Administrator like Sedgwick get away with a denial based on a non-specialty IME in an RSD claim? Well, unfortunately, we have case law that addresses this issue. And I'm going to talk with you about a Sixth Circuit uh, case uh, called Avery versus Sedgwick. Um, And I think the court got it wrong. Um, so let me tell you about this story, and I'm going to make some observations about um, this case and make some recommendations for how you should be handling your claim or a denial or termination. Ms. Avery developed advanced peripheral uh, demyelinating uh, uh, polyneuropathy of the, her lower legs as a result of an ankle fracture. Her disability policy was administered by Sedgwick, and Sedgwick's known for their biased claims administration. Now, she was paid two years of benefits using the standard of disability, um, which was a disability, uh, she would be disabled if she was unable to do her own occupation. That definition of disability changed from own occupation to something called any occupation. Now, the games that disability carriers play at this stage is to create medical evidence uh, that you can do sedentary work, notwithstanding what your physician has to say. They're going to use liar for hire doctors who will review the medical records, or they'll use not so independent medical evaluators to give them an opinion that you can do at least sedentary work. Then, of course, the game is you've got to appeal uh, that wrongful denial or termination. And if you're not successful, you have to file a lawsuit in federal court. And generally, you have to overcome an arbitrary and capricious standard of review under the ERISA regulations. Um, unfortunately, you don't have a lot of protection, if you will, um, but there is something called um, there's something called the substantial compliance test. Again, the ERISA statute is a is a statute that has been interpreted by the court, and this substantial compliance test in determining whether or not the disability carrier plan is right or wrong uh, is a test that has no basis in the regulations. It's something the court made up. And so in Ms. Avery's case, Sedgwick had her undergo a liar for hire IME with a physician who was not a neurologist and then had the IME report in her medical records by neurologists who opined she could do sedentary work. So what the Sixth Circuit did is they said, okay, well, you know, Sedgwick had a paper review uh, and they didn't really rely on that paper review. um, And um, but they still had a neurologist review it. Um, they had this non-specialty IME and, you know, we get that that's not kind of, you know, the thing to do. But after this non-IME specialist, we had it, we meaning 
Sedgwick had it really re-reviewed, if you will, by neurologists. And so they may not have gotten it right the first time. They um, uh, had a non-specialty IME, and they didn't really kind of rely on that. But they did it right the last time when they had all of this re-reviewed. That, in their opinion, was substantial compliance. Now, I don't really think that's right for a number of reasons. One of the things that the regulations do say is that the disability carrier has to give you an explanation and produce documents, uh, which is the basis of the denial. And I don't think the denial letter in this case really set forth all the game playing that went on in this particular case. The other thing that I would have done, um, and I'm not criticizing Ms. Avery or her attorney, would have been to get what's called a functional capacity evaluation to document her functional restrictions and limitations with the polyneuropathy. I would have been attacking the basis of the opinion that she was capable of doing uh, sedentary work. Sedentary work does require sitting. And if you've got peripheral neuropathy issues, you have a painful condition and you've got to get up and move around. And this is this analysis is applicable in all sorts of cases, be they Ehlers-Danlos cases, complex regional pain cases, fibromyalgia cases. If you have symptoms uh, that prevent you from engaging in sedentary employment, those want to be emphasized in your medical records. Now, part of sedentary employment also involves bilateral manual dexterity because you're sitting and you're doing something with your hands. That can be problematic, obviously, in a peripheral neuropathy case if it just involves the lower extremities. But the fact that you would have to get up and move around can impact your ability to do sedentary work and meet the pace and production requirements. So I really would have been going after that. Also, I would have tried to tie it in with a vocational opinion that would have addressed why, based on even sedentary potential restrictions and limitations, uh, you couldn't do full-time sedentary work on a competitive basis, meeting the pace and production requirements. And so I think the court got it wrong for a lot of reasons. They didn't really thoroughly look at the quote-unquote analysis the disability carrier or plan, in this case, uh, Administrator Sedgwick did. Um, and they kind of used this substantial compliance argument as a way to dust this decision off if you will, with some of the problems and say, well, ultimately at the end of the day, they substantially complied when in fact they did. Um, I would hope that courts uh, would give cases like this closer consideration uh, because the ability to do sedentary work can be significantly impacted by any uh, neuropathy-based claim. Got it? I've hopefully given to you a roadmap as to how disability carriers or plans look at these painful condition claims, use position papers, uh, use liar for hire IME doctors, change their reasons for denial, and then hope that the court will uphold a denial. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Winning Isn't Easy. Please subscribe. Uh, please tell your friends and family about it. And I look forward to talking with you in our next episode of Winning